Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, and racism that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a calm evening in July of 1987, Rebecca Spencer fell asleep while watching TV in her living room. It had been a long day. The 27-year-old mother of two was in the process of packing up for a big move. The glow of the television set threw a kaleidoscope of colors across Rebecca's sleeping form. As she dozed, a hulking form quietly entered the room. Although he was only 13 years old, Craig Price was bigger than some full-grown men and much more dangerous. The TV's dim light illuminated a carving knife in Craig's hand. Taking care not to wake Rebecca, he lifted the blade above his head. And then he thrust it into his unsuspecting victim. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're going to discuss the savage murders committed by Craig Price, one of the youngest serial killers in U.S. history. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. This is a one-part episode covering Craig Price, the notorious Warwick slasher. First, we'll discuss what drove this seemingly shy, mild-mannered boy to commit his first murder at age 13. Later, we'll focus on the end of his murderous rampage and how his frenzied attacks were brought to an end. Stick around for more details on the Warwick slasher right after this. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Ever since he was a child, Craig Price was used to drawing attention. In 1978, when Craig was five, his working-class family moved to Warwick, Rhode Island, where black people made up less than 1% of the population. However, Craig's skin color wasn't what really made him stand out. It was his larger-than-average build. Craig embraced his size, using it to become a skilled football player. He was so strong, his teammates called him Iron Man. Despite his intimidating bulk and athletic prowess, Craig was also soft-spoken. His affable, comedic nature ensured he was always surrounded by friends. He was known as a jokester and loved making his family laugh. But he also had a dark side that lurked just below the placid surface. As a preteen, Craig found a new hobby. Dressed head to toe in black, he scoured the neighborhood at night, stealing from houses. Sometimes he prowled alone sometimes with a group of friends. This rebellious side didn't go unnoticed. In 1986, 12-year-old Craig was arrested for breaking and entering. The charge landed him in juvenile court. The judge sentenced him to six months of family counseling. But these sessions had little effect to curb his criminal activities. Once the six months were up, Craig returned to his thieving ways. His troubles only deepened when his friends introduced him to smoking and drugs. Even with all the negative influences in his life, Craig displayed an innate talent for schoolwork. He frequently tested above his grade level, but rather than use his intellect to succeed in the classroom, he used it to put in the least effort possible. He often cut class. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Many experts associate skipping school with juvenile behavior issues. According to CRC Health, not going to class can sometimes result in drug and alcohol abuse, high-risk sexual behavior, and vandalism. Craig's rebellious behavior may have also been a sign of a deeper problem. Theft, deceitfulness, truancy, substance abuse, and impulsiveness are all symptoms of conduct disorder, the adolescent precursor to antisocial personality disorder. The DSM-5 defines conduct disorder as a repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior in which the basic rights of others or major age-appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. That description fit young Craig pretty well. He didn't display much remorse for his actions and failed to rectify his behavior even when he was warned about the consequences. If Craig did suffer from conduct disorder, it could have been something he was born with. But it may also have been triggered by an inability to regulate his anger at situations which were beyond his control. Whatever the underlying cause of Craig's truancy, it came back to bite him. 
1986, he was forced to repeat seventh grade after missing too many classes. For someone like Craig, being held back a year could prove devastating and have a strong mental effect on him. Developmental behavioral pediatrician Laura McGuinn found that repeating a grade can affect a child's social and emotional development. In one study, sixth grade students described being held back as the most stressful life event they could think of. But repeating a year of school was far from the only trauma in Craig's life. Growing up, he experienced several instances of violent racism. When he was 13, Craig challenged one of the kids in his neighborhood to a bicycle race. The two boys were poised on the starting line, surrounded by cheering neighbors. Craig gripped the handlebars tightly, ready to explode with energy. Over the noise, Craig heard someone yell a racist taunt at him. He had experienced racism before, but nothing quite so vulgar as this. A cold fear twisted his stomach, and a nervous lump grew in his throat. Unsure of what might happen if he responded, Craig ignored the slur. He figured the best approach would be to focus on the task at hand. He was sure he and his brand-new Roadrunner bicycle could outpace his opponents, Huffy. Unfortunately, the racist interloper wasn't done. As he waited for the signal to race, Craig was struck in the leg with a golf ball. This time, he turned around, wanting to see his bigoted attacker. There stood a young man around 19. He and two friends leered at Craig. The leader of the group opened his big mouth again. He asked Craig if he had stolen the shiny new bike he was sitting astride. Craig may have been big for his age, but the older boys, basically adults, had him paralyzed with fear. In that moment, he had one wish, that the earth would open up and swallow the obnoxious bullies. Craig's wish didn't come true. All he got was another golf ball pelted his way. It was followed by more hateful barbs about the color of his skin. Luckily, it seemed that the racists had no interest in sticking around for the bike race. Craig watched, tense and furious, as they made their way to a beat-up Mustang. The engine gave a loud, distinct roar as it revved. Relief washed over him as the car drove away. At last, the contest could begin. For the first few moments of the race, Craig felt nothing but exhilaration. But then, he heard a familiar sound over his shoulder. The aggressors were back. No longer armed with golf balls, they were now driving a 3,000-pound weapon. They leaned out of the windows of the Mustang, screaming more hateful slurs at Craig. They seemed determined to run him over. Craig was no longer racing a friend. He was racing for his life. The car barreled alongside him, edging closer and closer. Finally, he was left with no choice. He hopped the curb. He threw his bike onto the ground and managed to get away from the Mustang on foot. When he felt it was safe once more, Craig cautiously returned to where he dropped his bike. The coast was clear, the Mustang was gone, but his brand new bicycle had been trashed. The chain guard was mangled and the seat and handlebars were busted. In that moment, looking at the twisted remains of his bike, Craig may have felt a deep desire to punish those who tormented him. As one of the few black people in his town, it's likely that Craig experienced this kind of violent racism many times, and it seems to have had a drastic effect on his psyche. 
Psychologist Alan B. Feinstein later examined Craig Price. In his assessment, he wrote that years of experiencing both overt and covert forms of racism appear to have had a significant impact on Craig's psychological functioning and ultimate acts of aggression. But for the moment, Craig swallowed his rage. He returned home hoping to find safety and reassurance from his parents. Instead, his father chastised him for racing and spanked him. Unsure of how to react, Craig could only sit there and cry. When his parents refused to listen, there was no way for Craig to express the emotions running through him. His only alternative was to bottle up those feelings of anger and hatred. Craig tried to distance himself from his troubles by having fun with his friends. But as the bike race incident had shown, there was no escaping the racism in his environment. One day in late July of 1987, Craig was playing football with the neighborhood kids. As they tussled, he heard someone shout another racist epithet at him. This time it came from a man in a white car parked at a neighbor's house. Craig didn't respond. But underneath his calm exterior, his rage consumed him. Craig later said that this was his typical response for years. He kept all of his emotions under the surface. Clinical psychologist Dr. Spencer DeVault, who later worked with Craig, described him as a young man limited in the available resources for coping with stress and vulnerable to being overwhelmed by stimulus demands, both from his own emotional pressures and from the environment. And once it was unleashed, the consequences were disastrous. Coming up, Craig's anger pushes him over the edge. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. In July of 1987, 13-year-old Craig Price was at the end of his rope. Despite his intimidating 240-pound frame, Craig wasn't immune from racist attacks. As one of the few black teenagers in his predominantly white neighborhood, he felt like he walked around with a target on his back. Unable to deal with his feelings in a constructive manner, he repressed his pent-up anger and frustration. But it sat there, boiling under the surface. He was a powder keg waiting to blow. Studies have shown that when we force ourselves to keep certain emotions locked up, we can experience short-term mental and physical reactions. Clinical psychologist Victoria Terrett states that after stewing in your anger, not saying a thing, you could encourage an emotional outburst. 
The mind and body can overreact to even the slightest of situations, resulting in a physical explosion. It's the body's way of releasing pent-up emotion. Unaware of the harm he was doing to himself, Craig continued to ignore his rage. He tried to focus on friends, football, things that made him happy. But eventually, his underlying emotions got the best of him. As the sun was setting on the night of July 27, 1987, the local kids took advantage of the warm evening. They decided to play Manhunt, a hybrid version of hide-and-seek crossed with tag. The playing field spanned the whole block of Inez Avenue. Backyards, driveways, shrubs, nothing was off-limits. Craig had just smoked a joint with some of his friends and was eager to join in the game. While he hid, he noticed a car rolling down the quiet street. It was the same one that was parked at his neighbor's house the week before. The man who had yelled racist slurs at him was behind the wheel. The driver spotted Craig and once again zeroed in on him. He rolled down his window, blasted his horn, and shouted more hateful things. He even swerved towards Craig. Craig was furious, but he didn't do anything. He just stood there and took it even though the man had practically run him down to the street. Afterward, Craig was ashamed of himself. Why hadn't he defended himself? After the game concluded, Craig and some of the other boys continued to hang out, but Craig remained quiet. His friends had no idea what was going on inside his mind. The powder keg was sparked. Craig was fixated on making someone pay for his humiliation. After everyone went home, Craig sat alone in his room. He tried to calm down, but he couldn't. As the minutes ticked by, Craig slowly surrendered to the beast within. He was done being a victim. Craig stood up, walked to his closet, and pulled out a black magic aluminum baseball bat. He was going to take out all his anger on the white car. Dressed in black, the 240-pound 7th grader made his way to the house where the car had been parked. But it wasn't there anymore. Still, Craig was desperate to lash out. If he couldn't expel his wrath on the car, he would do it on the racist neighbor's house. Leaving the bat behind, Craig hid in the neighbor's backyard, watching the darkened house. He noticed a flickering light from one of the windows and crept forward to investigate. Inching his way up, he peered through the window. He saw that the living room television was on, surrounded by moving boxes. But that's not the only thing that caught Craig's attention. His neighbor, Rebecca Spencer, was fast asleep on the living room floor. Rebecca, a 27-year-old divorced mother of two, was in the process of moving. She had recently gotten her GED and wanted more for her family than her $5-an-hour job could offer. So she, her brother, and her kids had decided to move out of the house they'd been renting for the past year. By now, it was mostly packed up. With most of the furniture gone, Rebecca didn't have a bed to sleep in that night. Her brother was working the night shift, and her kids were staying with their father. She was all alone. But Craig didn't know any of this. He just assumed that Rebecca was somehow related to the bigot in the white car. He kept gazing into the house, trying to get a better look. Craig nearly jumped out of his skin when Rebecca's cat caused a commotion outside. The momentary panic subsided as soon as he saw the feline scurry into the house through a slightly open door. 
Craig followed right behind, he found himself in the kitchen, able to peer into the living room at Rebecca's sleeping form. There didn't seem to be anyone else inside the small house. Overwhelmed with tension, Craig tried to sort out his jumbled thoughts. He needed to remind himself of the plan, vandalize the house, and maybe, just maybe, burn it down, too. But he couldn't find matches or a lighter in the house, so he abandoned the arson part. And the more he thought about it, the more vandalism didn't feel like enough. His rage was demanding that he kill. Because he had ditched his bat, Craig needed a new weapon. He grabbed a frying pan and gave it a few practice swings, but it was too heavy. That's when he spotted a 10-inch carving knife. The instant he held the carver in his hand, Craig knew that his theoretical vengeance plan was becoming more and more real by the second. Craig crept into the living room. He stood over Rebecca, staring at her. Even though she wasn't the source of his anger, the memories of the man in the white car came flooding back. Enveloped by the television's throbbing blue light, Craig was overcome with a strange feeling of awareness. Every emotion he'd been bottling up was now driven to the surface. And with that awareness came a savage sense of anger. When Rebecca stirred, Craig was consumed with rage. In a terrifying frenzy, he stabbed her 58 times with the 10-inch blade. Once Craig realized what he'd done, he bolted out of the house, knife still in hand. Before climbing a fence, he carelessly tossed the murder weapon. He then sprinted back to his own yard. He'd barely made it back to his house when it hit him. The frying pan. His fingerprints were all over it. Craig rushed back to Rebecca's house. He slipped in through the open door, grabbed the frying pan, and darted out. Unsure what to do with it, he threw the pan in some nearby bushes. Back in his room, Craig shed his bloody clothes. He couldn't let his parents see them. He packed them in a bag and carefully hid it in the attic. He frantically cleaned himself off in the bathroom, trying to stay quiet. Then, as if nothing happened, Craig returned to his room and smoked more marijuana. As he laid down to sleep, he held the family cat to his chest, letting the vibration of its purring soothe him. The next morning, Rebecca's brother, Carl, returned home from work and found her lifeless body drenched in blood. It didn't take long for word of the brutal murder to spread through town. Unfortunately for police, Craig hadn't left any physical evidence. They had very little to go on, and the investigation to find the so-called Warwick Slasher stalled. In their search for the killer, no one suspected Rebecca's 13-year-old neighbor. Craig had gotten away with murder. Coming up, the Warwick Slasher strikes again. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. 
You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now, back to the story. On July 27, 1987, 13-year-old Craig Price viciously murdered his neighbor, stabbing 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer in her sleep. In the aftermath of the murder, police had little to go on. Craig had covered his tracks well. When nobody came to arrest him, he realized that his life could carry on as usual. He continued skipping class, wasting his days smoking and drinking. At night, he racked up more incidents of petty theft. He followed this pattern for the next year, until he was busted in the summer of 1988 for scoping out houses to burglarize. This time, the judge ordered Craig to juvenile detention. However, the sentence was suspended. Instead of family counseling, Craig was given probation and released. His probation report listed his condition as improved since his last arrest. Because he wasn't considered a high risk, the 15-year-old killer was free to roam the streets. It was only a matter of time before Craig was set off again. In August of 1989, he encountered a woman named Joan Heaton, who was out with her two young daughters for a bike ride. As he passed by, Craig noticed that the chain on one of the girls' bikes had slipped off the gears. He stopped, smiled, and offered to fix the problem. Heaton agreed to let him, but Craig felt there was something off about the woman as she watched him replace the chain. She was staring at him a little too intently. Craig wondered if Joan would be scrutinizing him so closely if he were a white teenager. As he finished fixing the bike, the two young girls began giggling to themselves, and Craig's anger flared further. He believed they were laughing at him for the same reason their mother was watching him like a hawk, the color of his skin. Craig had experienced repeated incidents of violent racism during his childhood. Because he felt persecuted so often, he may have been particularly sensitive to the issue, and as a result could have suffered from confirmation bias during his first encounter with Joan Heaton. According to author Dr. Sharam Heshmat, confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively. We pick out those bits of data that confirm our prejudices. It's possible that the hostility Craig sensed from Joan was the product of a misunderstanding, rather than racial bias. Regardless, in the moment, Craig let the slight go. But a few days later, while he walked home, he thought he saw Joan staring at him through her window with the same intensity. He felt the all-too-familiar rage wash over him. He had gone out of his way to help that woman and her girls, and in return, he was treated like some kind of danger to the neighborhood. In that moment, he resolved to show Joan just how dangerous he could be. On the night of September 1st, 1989, Craig strolled through his neighborhood toward Joan Heaton's house. He was high on LSD as he walked down a shadowy alley. Then, something caught his eye in the dark. It was Joan Heaton's home, and the windows were wide open. It didn't seem like anyone was home, but Craig felt it was worth taking a look. He quietly took off his shoes, then climbed through one of the open windows. In the dark kitchen, Craig helped himself to a carton of orange juice. But as he drank, he heard noises from another room. Someone was home. Before Craig had a chance to hide or escape, 
39-year-old Joan Heaton entered her kitchen and turned on the light. The mother of two stood there, frozen, face-to-face with the imposing form of Craig Price. In a flash, Craig's hands were around her throat. He wrestled her back into the hallway. The sounds of the struggle woke up Joan's two daughters, 10-year-old Jennifer and 8-year-old Melissa. Seeing the hulking teenagers strangle their mother, the girls had no idea what to do. As they stood there in shock, Craig dashed into the kitchen and grabbed a knife. Joan tried to tell her girls to call the police, but Craig was too fast. He stabbed Joan before anyone could move. Joan tried to fight back, desperate to save her daughters. She bit her attacker, and he bit her right back. Jennifer and Melissa screamed in fear. Afraid the noise would alert a neighbor, Craig pressed his face against the window to check for police. When he'd finished with Joan, Craig turned to the two young girls. He stabbed each of them dozens of times. His blows were so brutal that he broke several knives, leaving the blades inside the bodies of his defenseless victims. He was so crazed, he even stabbed himself, leaving a deep gash in his hand. It was a furious rampage. He stabbed Joan almost 60 times and had bludgeoned eight-year-old Melissa with a kitchen stool. In all the mayhem, Craig wasn't sure which of his victims died first. He later said that he just kept stabbing until the house was silent. Despite their screams, no one came to help Joan and her daughters. In the eerie, echoing silence, Craig covered up the bodies with linens from around the house. He couldn't bear to look at what he'd done. Then he turned his attention to hiding the murder weapons. He grabbed a trash bag from the kitchen and tossed the knives and broken off handles inside. Exiting through the window he entered from, Craig hurried back home. He tossed the bag of knives into the backyard shed. He stuffed his clothes and shoes into another bag and hid it in the attic, just as before. After getting away with murder two years earlier, Craig felt confident he'd done it again. He looked forward to getting back to life as usual. But as Craig settled back into his routine delinquency, Joan Heaton's mother was worrying about her family. She hadn't heard from Joan in days. Eventually, she asked her other daughter to go with her to check on Joan. Using a spare key, they let themselves into Joan's house. As soon as they opened the door, the rancid smell made it clear something was wrong. Joan's mother had already imagined the worst for her daughter, but she could never have envisioned a horror like this. Walking further into the house, they saw the blood-splattered floors and walls, and then they found the bodies, still tucked under their sheets. When news of the grisly triple homicide hit the airwaves, the town of Warwick went into a state of panic. Thinking back to Rebecca Spencer's murder, locals were terrified that a serial killer was living amongst them. The police connected the two attacks as well. They were sure that whoever had killed Rebecca had also killed Joan and her daughters. But unlike Rebecca's murder, the killer had left behind more clues this time. First, bloody size 13 footprints were all over Joan's house. Second, the police found blood in the bathroom. They believed that the killer had cut his hand during the attack. The suspect profile described the killer as young and living in close proximity to both Rebecca Spencer and the Heatons. Crucially, the profile also listed the potential suspect 
as being white. Given that the police believed they were dealing with a serial killer, it's not surprising that they assumed he would be white. According to the International Journal of Police Science and Management, serial killers are generally white males who primarily kill strangers within their own race. Further studies show that most serial killers choose victims within their own race because that's the group they're most comfortable interacting with. Therefore, they consider it easier to release their darkest urges. But Craig bucked both of these trends. He wasn't white, and his victims weren't members of his own ethnic background. He had inadvertently thrown investigators off his trail. Fixated on finding a young white man, the police scoured Craig's neighborhood. Still, when a pair of officers on patrol saw Craig walking down the street and saw the bandage wrapped around his hand, they took note. He didn't fit the profile, but it was still worth investigating. When they asked him about it, Craig said he'd gotten drunk a few nights earlier and punched a hole in a car window on Keeley Avenue. Because they believed they were looking for a white killer, the officers were inclined to believe him. They let Craig go on his way, then drove to Keeley Avenue to check out his story just in case. But instead of finding shards of broken glass or even the vandalized car itself, they found nothing. They also checked their records and saw that no one had filed a report of the alleged incident. With the police unable to verify the story of his injured hand, Craig became a suspect. Taking into account his considerable size, including his feet, he quickly moved to the top of the list. He and his parents were brought to the station for questioning. Craig insisted that he had told the truth about his hand. A polygraph test, however, showed otherwise. When his fingerprints matched those at the crime scene, police had enough evidence to get a search warrant. At 6 a.m. on Sunday, September 17th, two weeks after the Heaton murders, police swarmed the Price House. Craig's parents watched in horror as their home was ransacked. Craig seemed unfazed by what was going on. He sat on the couch, occasionally falling asleep amidst all the activity. It didn't take long for officers to find Craig's bags full of bloody clothes in the attic. They also found the murder weapons stashed in the garden shed. After being hauled down to the station a second time, Craig's parents insisted that he be completely honest with police. Following their instructions, Craig described the Heaton murders. His calm recounting of the attack was so disturbing that Craig's father left the room to throw up. When questioned about Rebecca Spencer, Craig confessed to that murder, too. With Craig's confessions on record, he was tried in juvenile court. The judge sentenced Craig to the legal maximum for a 15-year-old, five years in the Rhode Island training school. The thought of a remorseless murderer being back on the street so soon struck fear in the hearts of victims' families. A citizen action group called Citizens Opposed to the Release of Craig Price formed to lobby against his judgment. Within a month of his sentencing, a new law had passed in Rhode Island that allowed minors to be tried as adults for serious crimes. But in the end, additional legal action wasn't needed to keep Craig incarcerated. To this day, Craig remains behind bars. Over the decades, his sentence has been extended repeatedly for fighting, criminal contempt, and attacks on fellow inmates. As recently as 2019, he still had 25 more years to serve. 
Given Craig's complete lack of remorse over his killings and his terrifying pattern of frenzied killings, it's easy to hope he never becomes a free man. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Matt Clifford, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 